Hi, everybody. You know, the Dinner Party download wouldn't exist without listeners like you. True. If this podcast helped you dazzle your friends in 2013, please support it as part of your year-end giving. You can think of it as a tip for good service, yeah. but this time you get a tax deduction in return and a special gift from our show. Very special. It is. Donate at dinnerpartydownload.org. Welcome to the show. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Uh, two penguins are crossing an iceberg. One penguin turns to the other penguin and says, you look like you're wearing a tuxedo. The other penguin says, well, maybe I am. That's a joke? Nobody ever laughs at it, but I always thought it was funny. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a semi-joke from mm-hmm. Andrew Bajalski, director of Computer Chess, which just got nominated for a Spirit Award for Best Low-Budget Film. That'll help break the ice. Maybe in Antarctica. Or somewhere. Yeah. And later we'll speak with movie star Jeffrey Rush about his latest awards contender. Also coming up, Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton threatens us and a live studio audience with physical harm. And everyone loves it. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. Joining us is a champion of small talk, Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor at the famed literary quarterly, The Paris Review. Their latest issue hit stands this week. And Sadie, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So firstly, congratulations on the winter issue. You have uh, the essayist Jeff Dyer is in there, the artist Chuck Close. Yeah, 207 is a good issue. If, if you've seen it, first of all, it's cool looking. We've got this kind of retro image of a flight attendant on the cover. <laughs> yeah. Pretty literary. I always think of that one. Yeah, well, well, we, we have serialization of a novel by Rachel Cusk, who's a British writer, and it takes place in the 70s. And we got actually a commercial fashion artist, Samantha Han, to illustrate it. So a lot of kind of like sexy, lounging 1970s people. So you are the editor of a literary journal and you're telling us to judge this by its cover. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> we put a lot of work into the covers. Yeah. Listen, okay. in this marketplace, feel free to judge okay. by the cover. All and right. then the cover will lead you to so much more. All right. So, Sadie, let's get to the main event here. Yeah. All week long, we've been hearing these headlines. House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan and Democratic Senator Patty Murray announced a compromise on the budget. For the first time, one of the top automakers in America put a woman in the driver's seat of the company. The world's leaders paid tribute to Nelson Mandela. And now for the small talk, you tell us something we haven't heard. What news story are you going to be talking about at parties? Well, it's actually very topical right now because uh, I was very late to the That's studio. True. You were very late. And you got a text that you were running 20 minutes late. I was, and that was after I'd gotten out of the subway and hopped into a taxi. But You're in New York City, obviously. I'm in New York City, and what I could have done here in New York is gotten a letter, an excuse from the MTA. It's like the doctor's notes of public transportation. What? And it's a, the, the Metropolitan Transit Authority is issuing excuses to passengers? Yeah, you can get them and they'll be like, yeah, there really was someone giving birth slash a track malfunction. So I can verify that the train you were on was really late? Yeah, exactly. And apparently it's really good for like actors and models who are late to auditions or things like that where you can really lose a job based on this kind of thing. 
and increasingly employers are demanding them. These letters from the MTA, they like yeah, won't let you, you you submit the form. I don't know how fast the turnaround is. It frankly yeah. sounds really inefficient, but <laughs> you're going to waste as much time getting the note as you do. Your late note will be late. Yeah, yeah. but theoretically <laughs> this is now an option. I think what's going to happen is this is going to undermine a time-old excuse, right? Like if people, bosses are going to demand that you verify that your subway was but late. At the same time anyone who's ridden the MTA has been heinously delayed. Yeah, like what New York boss is going, the train was late, that's impossible. It would be great if your job could give you late notes for your home life. Yeah. Now, that would be great. <laughs> exactly. Like, Sorry, Excel froze again, honey, and I missed dinner. Yeah, Sorry, right. sweetheart. This Couldn't may be you your million bed. dollar idea. <laughs> Workers unite. All right. Uh, Sadie Stein, we believe that your train was delayed, so thanks for getting here and providing us with small talk. Thank you for having me. And now time for cocktails. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a water fountain that spouts booze. Public service. First the history, this week back in 1953, Piltdown Man made headlines. No, he wasn't a dapper British superhero. No. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Charles Dawson was either a liar or a chump. See, Dawson was the most famous fossil collector in England. And in 1910, a worker in the village of Piltdown gave him a bone. It had been found in a gravel pit. Dawson dug there himself and found more bones, which fit together into a weird skull. The teeth and cranium looked human, but the jaw was like a chimp's. Dawson said he'd found anthropology's holy grail, the missing link, an ape man half a million years old. Experts from the British Museum agreed it was the find of the century. Soon, anthropology textbooks listed a new species, Eoanthropus Dawsoni, Dawson's Dawn Man. Or rather, they did, until 1953. That's when a new test revealed the skull was just 600 years old. It had been stained to look older. The jaw came from an ape. Someone had filed down the teeth so they looked human. Piltdown Man was a hoax. The prime suspect? Dawson. But he never had to defend himself. He died in 1916. Since then, 38 more of his fossils have turned out to be fake. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Ryan Chetiawardena. He is a bartender at 69 Colebrook Row in London. Ryan, what cocktail did it inspire you to make? Uh, when we heard the history, we kind of got thinking about a bottle that we had had looking in the back of the bar for some time that we'd inherited off the previous owners. It kind of seemed like a cross between a brandy and a whiskey, and we couldn't quite place it. It seemed a bit of a missing link. Really? So we stuck it through a vacuum still and made a spirit out of it, made a white spirit. It's close to like a Pisco. It's kind of like a spicy brandy. Almost feels a little hoax-like, Ryan, to be honest. It's <laughs> one of those ones that's almost too good to be true, really, isn't it? So you've created a missing link drink with your missing link Pisco spirit. What is it called? Uh, we're going to call it the Piltdown Daisy. What's a daisy? It's similar to a sour. Okay. So we're going to use 60 mils of uh, Pisco, mm -hmm. 15 mils of lemon juice, Okay. 10 mils of lime juice, Okay. 15 mils of sugar syrup, mint leaves, and add a dash of soda. So you guys sound like you're, you're a very serious cocktail establishment there. <laughs> yeah. Then maybe you can help me with this cocktail hoax where people think that you should pair gin with vermouth for a martini. <laughs> Who needs the vermouth? That's like a baboon meets man situation, don't you think? Uh, I actually think gin and vermouth have a beautiful harmony together. All right. Well, you guys have been fooled before over there. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so Brendan, if I understand right, the owners mm-hmm. of that bar bought the place, yeah. came with an unlabeled bottle of mystery liquid, mm-hmm. and they just drank some. <laughs> What's this? Yep. Well, you know, maybe when your job is tasting cocktails all day, you don't always <laughs> make the least risky decisions. It worked out all right, though, luckily. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find all our drink recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org, and we promise none could kill you. So we've learned about hoaxes, we've learned about late notes. Now, let's learn about some songs to play at your next gathering. For that, we turn to musician and critic Joey Sweeney. His writing has appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Salon, and the Best Music Writing book series. He's also been in a slew of bands over the years. His new solo album is called Long Hair. He's here with a party playlist. Hi, my name's Joey Sweeney. I am a writer and musician from Philadelphia, PA, and it is my honor to do this week's dinner party soundtrack. I am that awful kind of person that will collar people when they're in my home and say, you've got to hear this, and now you're next. The first track I would play is Como Talevu off of Blossom Deary's album from 1957. Blossom Deary was a really fantastic New York jazz singer who had a long and illustrious career. There's just something sweet yet elegant about her delivery. But I had to start. There's something about the backup vocals that I think was really predominant in film soundtracks in the 40s and 50s. It's sort of a a choral, almost angelic Disney effect, just kind of otherworldly. For as sweet as it is, there's also something kind of delightfully dippy about it. It'll put people in a good mood. So, you know, the moment arrives during the dinner party where you actually have to sit down and eat, where you kind of have a captive audience. And uh, there is something about the 20-minute live version of Nina Simone doing My Sweet Lord by George Harrison that every citizen of the United States needs to hear. Nina at the piano, a bass player that is just unstoppable, very intense tambourine work. (laughs) It goes from the highest points of almost hysteria. To being this super melancholy thing that is really very moving. Only you can save us, Lord. And then back again. I really want to see you. It is a concern that it might overpower conversation, but stakes are really high. So, you know, there will be time enough for talking later. For my third track, I would pick I Feel That Too by Jesse Balin. It's very sort of Carole King inspired, and I also hear a little bit of Stevie Nicks, Lara Nero, almost everything that I love. 
This is a record that goes for a real rock pop classicism. There's also a really great bridge in this song. Always on my mind, tension on the line, strung out in the sunshine. I don't think people really give bridges enough credit, but this one also goes to that sort of high angelic place that you hear in in that earlier Blossom Deary record. This whole record is one that you can sort of just drop the needle on and let it go all the way and reconvene everybody to the living room and share a glass of wine, have a smoke. I wouldn't say that I'm not the type of person to play my own music in my house, but I am definitely the type of person who would you know, very fairly expect to be ridiculed for doing that. Maybe as an outro to sort of, you know, throw on the lights and tell people that you have to be somewhere but you can't be here, I would play Records and Coffee off of Long Hair. For if you scrutinize, you shield your eyes, I woke up and I threw the blinds. When you're lonely, you got plenty of time. When you're lonely, you got plenty of time for Records and Coffee. A dinner party soundtrack, courtesy of singer-songwriter Joey Sweeney. His new album is called Long Hair. And mm-hmm. Rico, forget dinner and drinks. I just want to listen to that Nina Simone song <laughs> all night long, it's, right? It is great. <laughs> and its running time is about an entire night long, so that's yeah. perfect for you. <laughs> it's like a perfect song, you know? I it's agree. like eating a sandwich and napping simultaneously, (laughs) if that was possible. And actually, speaking of too much of a good thing, ladies and gentlemen, coming up, we have conversations with Jeffrey Rush, Aubrey Plaza, and LeVar Burton when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, actor and Reading Rainbow host LeVar Burton answers etiquette questions, and author and Broadway producer Vivek Tiwari tells us about a phone call that changed rock music history. Mm. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is Australian actor Jeffrey Rush. His many roles include a slew for which he earned Oscar nominations, including the speech therapist in The King's Speech, the Marquis de Sade in Quills, and pianist David Helfgott in Shine. He actually won Best Actor for that one. You can see him now in The Book Thief, in which he plays a German man trying to raise a young foster daughter while sheltering a Jewish refugee in Nazi-era Germany. This week I spoke to him about it. And Jeffrey, it's an honor. Ah, pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for coming. World War II, it's just an endlessly fascinating topic to people. There must be a million scripts set in that era floating around in any given day. Why pick this one? Ah, well, you know, I think you're right. It's uh, the statistic I heard recently was, uh, you know, that in that global war, you know, it was not only in Europe, but Russia and Africa and Japan and America and Australians were involved. Of course. It was something like 65 million people died in that six-year period. So I can understand why people want to tell stories about this horrific chapter in the human story. And everyone was involved, kind of. And everyone was involved on some level. You know, even my stepdad was telling me stories when I was 20 about 
the period when he was 20 and he was fighting up in Borneo. Uh, Australian, obviously. Uh, yeah, and there were a lot of elements to his personality as my stepdad that I found very uh, valuable. And when I first read the script, I got that feeling, you know what I mean? I thought, I know this fellow. He's very, very much like my stepfather. I love the character in this movie. He's just the gentlest and the kindest man. And you, you brought kind of the same quality to the King's speech. I just want you to be my uncle after I see these uh, films. Well, you know, it was that quality that appealed to me when I read the screenplay because I just recently had done a lot more theatre. And uh, I'd been playing some pretty outrageous characters like Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Ernest. Right, right. And I, I fulfilled the musical theatre fantasy and played in the musical A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Big, bold, burlesque kind of uh, Broadway show. Yeah. So there was just something when I happened to read the Book Thief screenplay that appealed to me, the, the stillness, the quietness of this man, but knowing as the story progresses that there's a much more interesting inner life. Well, I wanted to ask you about this, because a lot of times people ask actors if it's hard getting into the frame of mind to play someone dark and evil. But how do you get in the frame of mind to play somebody this decent? I mean, I imagine when you're shooting a film, you're not always feeling like a saint. You know, it might actually be harder. <laughs> to do that. No, I, was, I suppose I was always looking for little hints of how deeply troubled he was about the circumstances that they were in. Mm. So that, you know, the old actor's adage is when you're playing drunk, you don't play drunk, you play somebody who's desperately trying to look sober. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you've got a contradiction there to give it some resonance or some depth. So I, I suppose because of his, the, the kindliness that he has towards this young girl, I wanted that to be in battle with something inside him that knew that the country or his particular little microcosmic town was heading in a really dark direction. All right, well, we should note that you've played plenty of not wholly decent guys. You're going to reprise your role as the pirate Barbarossa in the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie. First of all, tell me what it's like after this kind of a subtle role going into that insane world. <laughs> well, you know, the scale is certainly different. But I remember having this conversation with Johnny Depp once, and he said, you know, you can think of this in the back of your head as being, just think of it that we're doing an art movie and there's just you and me having a fight, <laughs> just two actors playing a scene. You just happen to be 30 miles out at sea <laughs> where the scale of the crew, you know, there's 800 people for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very expensive art movie that you were yes. pretending to be in. Since we're talking about pirates, you are, by the way, the only person I've ever met who has an animatronics robot in their likeness at Disneyland. <laughs> yes. There's a Jeffrey Rush Barbarossa in the Pirates of the Caribbean theme, right? Did your kids ever visit the robot you at Disneyland when they were younger? Yes. In fact, my daughter's <laughs> traveling around America with a friend of hers at the moment, and they uh, they went to see it just the other day. That sounds like the craziest... And I thought, uh, you know... When you see statues of historic, famous people in Melbourne or London or whatever, you think, well, uh, it's not highly likely that I'm going to get that done in my lifetime. <laughs> but, you know, maybe my kids, kids, kids in early 22nd century of Disneyland still functioning, and I'm sure it will be. They can go and see great-great-granddad <laughs> up there being a pirate, which is kind of uh, you will really all, live almost forever. like performance art, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. You should record stuff, you know, for the robot to say to them, stuff that you would normally say, so when they go by, it's like, you know, wear your galoshes, yes. words of wisdom. All right, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. One of them, and maybe I've already asked it, maybe it was that one, uh, if we met you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? 
what question not to ask? Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I often fantasize about, you know, who you'd like to have at a dinner party. Oh, what you'd like? Yeah, no, no. I think, you know, a good dinner party always has a little frisson of conflict or debate. And whatever questions people bring up, that's what triggers either the food throwing or the yelling or the further heavy drinking. The best or, part. Or the uproarious laughter. I see. So yeah, so anything goes, basically. Anything goes. All right. If you, By the way, you mentioned, if you think about who you'd have at a dinner party, who would it be? Oh, the list is endless, you know. I mean, because we know so little about Shakespeare, and I reckon he would have been a great, great working man of the theater. You know, while all the actors were sitting around pubs and doing shtick and stuff like that, he was probably back home writing down what he'd heard some sailor say in a pub so he could who was italian or something you know what i mean and he'd be writing that down yeah i'd I'd just love to know more about the nuts and bolts of what his daily life would have been like and you could show him shakespeare and love see what he thinks yeah (laughs) yeah and they'd say we got it really terribly terribly wrong (laughs) (laughs) you got it what if he was like that was perfect how did you know uh that'd be interesting um here's our second and last question tell us it's more of a order really tell us something we don't know and this can be about anything, about yourself or just a piece of trivia about the world, something that would just blow our minds. Well, I, I just read, scanning through the paper this morning, scientists have found human remains from 400,000 years ago, right. which they've been able to map the DNA from. And it's thrown into question of what we traditionally accept as the standard evolutionary processes and this is pre-neanderthal human homo sapiens coexisting i think when you get if you get your own uh, human genome read now you'll everyone will find that they've got a tiny little bit of neanderthal in them <laughs> <laughs> maybe some more than others <laughs> All right, so Brendan, if Jeffrey's right about his Disneyland animatron, mm-hmm. in the next century, one of the world's great Oscar-winning thespians will be best known as a robot that mm. says, are ye scurvy bilge rats, over and over again. Yeah, while firing a fake musket. That's right. <laughs> a fitting tribute to his artistry. <laughs> to eavesdrop. Vivek Tiwari has produced hit Broadway shows like American Idiot, but his latest project is a graphic novel about the Beatles' legendary manager Brian Epstein. Today we overhear a dinner party-worthy tale you won't find in the book. Hi, my name is Vivek J. Tiwari, and I'm the author of the new graphic novel The Fifth Beatle, The Brian Epstein Story. And I'm here to tell you about how the Beatles almost didn't make it to the United States and the two nice Jewish boys who saved them. So it's an average day for Brian Epstein in the early 1960s. He starts his day working in his family's furniture store in the record section of that furniture store because in those days uh, people came to furniture stores to buy their record players because they were large pieces of furniture, putting in his hours there, then taking some time off to promote the Beatles, who he has recently gotten signed after every single label in the industry passed on them. But they had reached a bit of a standstill, and Brian's next ambition for them was to bring them over to the United States, which was unheard of. A British band had never made an impact in the United States before, but he believed that the Beatles were going to be bigger than Elvis, that it would be a worldwide sensation. 
these days were tough for Brian. He was gay at a time where it was literally against the law to be homosexual. He was Jewish at a time where anti-Semitism was rampant in the country. I know it might sound strange in a modern perspective, but Jewish people just didn't work in the music industry. The music industry was run by people like Sir Lou Grade and, you know, old white knights of the British Empire. So literally, here was this gay Jewish man running around Liverpool saying, I found a local band and they're going to be bigger than Elvis. Uh, it was rather ludicrous and people uh, accordingly laughed at him and thought that he was crazy and people like him didn't enter fields like that. So he would come home, you know, relatively dejected and uh, would have dinner with his family. He was living at home uh, with his mother and his father and his younger brother. Brian Epstein was in his 20s then, so he was a very young man. Thousands of miles away from Brian Epstein, there was another young Jewish man in New York City also hustling his way around the music industry, and this was Sid Bernstein. And Sid had caught wind of the Beatles and saw in them the same thing that Brian did, and he thought, this might be my big break if I could bring this band over to the United States. So Sid tracked down a phone number and called. And the person who picked up the phone was Brian's mother, Malka Epstein. Malka is Hebrew for queen, and she went by the nickname Queenie. He said, hi, my name is Sid Bernstein. You don't know me. I'm calling from New York City, and I'd like to bring your son's band over to the United States. So here's the thing. People in Liverpool, colloquially known as Scousers, are very well known for mastering the art of taking the piss, as they say, which basically means being pranksters. And so Queenie was certain that this phone call was a prank. Sid very quickly realized who he was talking to and thought to himself, I know how to charm a Jewish mother. And so he answered her questions quite humbly and respectfully. But nevertheless, she just didn't believe that someone calling from New York City by the name of Sid Bernstein was interested in bringing her son's local band over to the United States. But she finally decided, you know what? I'm still not sure I believe you, but you sound like a nice Jewish boy. So I'll put you on the phone with Brian. Up here in America... Here are the Beatles! So as the result of one feisty but supportive Jewish mother, a year later the world got its first outdoor stadium concert in the Beatles at Shea Stadium, uh, promoted by Sid Bernstein and arranged by Brian Epstein. <laughs> Author and Broadway producer Vivek Tiwari, he wrote the new graphic novel The Fifth Beatle, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download, our behind-the-scenes guy is American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, our weekly food lesson. Enrico, it's of course holiday season. Yes. And there's a question that millions of children will be asking soon. Mm, why didn't Santa give me a Miley Cyrus album this year? <laughs> we could. I have a good reason why not. But uh, no, that question, and what are chestnuts? Oh. Right? Because, okay. of course, this time of year, we're bombarded with that song about chestnuts roasting on an open fire. I'm familiar with the number. <clears throat> that wasn't the Velvet Fog. That was me. But you actually don't see many chestnuts outside the occasional sidewalk vendor these days. Yeah, that's true. Which struck me as odd in this age of high foodieism. Mm. So I did some research, and I found there's a conservation group called the American Chestnut Foundation. Mm. And the other day, I called their president, Brian Burhans, and I asked him about chestnuts, namely, why aren't they everywhere? The American chestnut, it's a hardwood tree. Okay. It had a large uh, range, uh, about 200 million acres from Maine to Florida over to the Ohio River Valley. 
you know, there was almost four billion trees. One in four trees was an American chestnut. Oh my gosh. Uh, and unfortunately, when the blight came into the United States accidentally, probably at the end of the 1800s, uh, the chestnut quickly within 40 to 50 years was removed from our forest as a dominant tree. So tell me about the blight. What happened? Well, sometime during the late 1800s, this fungus uh, was introduced accidentally, probably in the New York region because we first identified the chestnut blight or the chestnut fungus in the Bronx Zoo. And that was in 1904. And by 1950, the chestnut blight made its march clear down the entire range. The chestnuts must have remained part of the American diet for a little bit in the first part of the 20th century because the song that inspired me to go searching for chestnuts was written in the 40s. Well, a lot of the folklore and a lot of our history with chestnut does most likely come from the days when chestnut was very common. Uh, mm-hmm. We, you know, basically people would collect these chestnuts, load them on railroad cars, and then they would ship them to major metropolitan areas, Baltimore, New York, yeah. other cities. And you'd have street vendors that would actually roast these chestnuts and sell them. Now, we still had other species of chestnuts from Asia, for example, that were planted in the United States that probably did provide some chestnuts. But the availability of chestnut basically went from ubiquitous to near zero. Why not grow European chestnut trees here or Chinese chestnut trees here if they yield nuts that people can eat? The difference between the American chestnut and the other chestnut species that come from Asia are night and day. Hmm. The American chestnut is a wild tree that would grow as tall as any tree we have in our forest. In fact, we have records of chestnuts reaching 14 feet in diameter. That's like redwood level. It often is referred to as the redwood of the east. This Mm. was a massive tree that provided food, lumber. It provided wildlife habitat. Asian species of chestnut, the Chinese chestnut, European chestnut, those other chestnut species really over time were developed to be shorter have larger crowns because they were designed for nut production. Mm-hmm. If And people have tried this. You put those trees in our forests. Our forests are very aggressive growers. They grow very tall, very fast. And those species die out quickly because they become shaded by the other forest tree species. Mm. There's plenty of uh, Chinese chestnuts, for example, throughout the eastern United States. And the nuts are perfectly good to eat, although a little different from American chestnut. The key in our mission is to restore the species back to our forest. So tell me about the American Chestnut Foundation. When did it start and what's it all about? It was started by a group of scientists and an attorney out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Hmm. Another individual that was key and and probably an individual most of us know is Norman Borlaug, um, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically they were told, this won't work. You can't do this. The chestnut's lost. And they said, you know what? If we can do it in corn, we can do it in wheat, we can certainly do it in a tree. It's just going to take a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. They devised a plan, put the plan in place, and we've been working on that plan for 30 years. And so how's it going? What's happened happened in the 30 years you guys have been around? We're currently at our testing and evaluation stage. So we've spent 30 years developing this tree. Now it's we're working with fellow scientists, uh, universities, U.S. Forest Service to plant these out into the environment and then closely monitor how they do over time. And so, and so it sounds like the, the foundation was created to restore this tree in America. And one of its secret weapons is that chestnuts taste good. And so you're hoping that maybe if people catch on, that'll help the future of this tree, right? Absolutely. I mean, we, we all know about the panda bear, and we often refer to those as charismatic megafauna. <laughs> the American chestnut really is the charismatic megaflora. 
Hmm. This is the one tree. This is the flagship that we can use to gain people's interest in our forests. You know, all of us, we call it the green blur. You're driving down the road. All you see is green trees. And we really don't think about what's happening in those forests. Yeah. But there's a lot happening in those forests, and it's going to take groups to keep the focus on conservation of our forests to keep our ecosystems healthy. Maybe you guys need a baby chestnut tree cam because that worked for the panda. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We have Charlie Chestnut, which is an educational program we use to teach kids about the American chestnut. Oh, there you Uh, go. He's a cute little bugger. (laughs) So, Rico, I don't really have high hopes for the chestnut cam. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) But I do know how Brian can get people to care about these trees. Okay. Chestnuts are gluten-free. Oh, there it is. Right? You're done. (laughs) Once word gets out, we're going to see legions of Lululemon tree planters, and (laughs) soon the chestnut will reign supreme once again. All right, folks, get ready for it. Meanwhile, coming up, you're going to hear some highlights from our recent live show in L.A., including actor LeVar Burton answering etiquette questions and comedian Aubrey Plaza talking about her high school mustache when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your weekend dinner parties. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and recently we had a party of our own. Yes. A few weeks back in Los Angeles, we hosted our first ever live event. It was held before a sold-out audience at public radio station KPCC, and it, it was it was great. It featured food, cocktails, pre-show jitters. We're a, in there. a little bit of pre-show jitters, Important. and also an etiquette segment with Star Trek and Reading Rainbow star LeVar Burton. You're going to hear that in a few minutes, but first, we're going to hear from the evening's guest of honor, actor Aubrey Plaza. That's right. She plays the intensely disinterested intern-turned-personal assistant April Ludgate mm-hmm. on NBC's Parks and Recreation, of course. She made memorable appearances in the film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Funny People. When we spoke to her live, the DVD for her most recent film, The To-Do List, had just come out. Aubrey Plaza, everyone. <laughs> You hear this? Yep. (laughs) You familiar with this song? I am. I was named after that song. Why did your parents name you after such a sad song? (sighs) I ask myself that every day. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this week, the to-do list comes out on DVD. That's right. Um, (laughs) This is about. I told you I'm terrible at this. So are we. That's why we brought you here. Yeah. Okay, you're, good. you're the ringer. It's our first time. Okay. Yeah. Really glad to be here. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I am. We forgot to say that. This is that, the weirdest room I've ever been in. <laughs> Hands down. Let's make it weirder. Let's, let's play okay. a clip from yes. the to-do list. Now, oh, this God. is a raunchy movie. Yeah, it's oh, about an overachieving high school senior. She's a virgin, and she decides that she's going to basically try out every sex act known to man <laughs> before she gets to college. It's a little raunchy. Yes, she j- makes a list of sexual things and treats it like a homework, like a summer homework assignment. Indeed. And she's very good at homework. <laughs> she's a valedictorian. She, she is said, a valedictorian. So we found one clip that we, we can play it in a semi-family friendly forum so let's see the clip okay, that's the so clip that's, that's it, it. That's oh, okay good it's okay. A really that's funny. That was funny. take our word for it you are good you won girl. a spirit award I think for that didn't you no seriously let's watch the rest of it hey look there's uh, something I want to ask you 
shoot. Can I kiss you? I know you can kiss me, but may you kiss me? Oh. What? Forget it, yes. You can definitely kiss me. Cool. <laughs> Bravo. That was a perfect clip for public radio, the grammar correction. Yeah, right it's, like, it's like most of our audience. So, so, you pl <laughs> so you play Brandy Clark. She's a straight-A student. She's incredibly awkward. What were your high school years like? I was not a straight-A student, but I got pretty good grades. And awkward. Everyone in high school is awkward, I think. Are um, you super awkward? But no, I wasn't a freak in high school. Like I am now. All right, disappointed. Uh, I was like, you know, I went to a really small, all-girls, private Catholic school. So my high school experience was probably really different from other people's experiences. But in my school, it was cool to get good grades. And but we, we understand that you were maybe a little bit of a, a rebel. There's a mustache story. Yes. Um, I did cool a lot of pranks. I there, it's a long story, but basically, okay. Uh, <laughs> short version of it is that at my school, it was called Ursuline Academy. There was a handbook of rules. I was very obsessed with this handbook. The principal at the time was also very obsessed with the handbook, and I I wanted to do something that was legal that wasn't in the handbook but that would still make her really angry so i convinced everyone in my class to wear facial hair to school in an all-girls all -girls school. school yeah because i wanted to do a mustache protest and i just remember there was a moment in spanish class when my teacher we just had a standoff and she was like you have to take that off right now and i was like i will not take it off because it's not against the rules. Because it's not in the handbook. And, um, and then I got a detention, and they wrote on the detention disorderly conduct or something. And I was like, I will not take that home unless it says exactly why I'm in trouble. And so then they wrote, failure to remove mustache when asked. And I took it home, <laughs> and I gave it to my parents. And you are now my hero. By we the had way. a laugh. <laughs> That rebellious spirits in keeping with some of the characters you play, your character April Ludgate on Parks and Recreation, and we have a clip of that. Okay. How about June 50th? Sorry? Do you think you could come back today at 265? He's available then. What is going on? Looks like the only other day he has open is March 10th. Does that work, sir? <laughs> <laughs> Well, a lot of people really like April. There's not a lot of characters like her on television. When you interact with your fans, what goes down? When it does happen, I feel like a lot of people expect me to be like April or to be like mean or, or something. And Do they ask you to be mean to them? One time, yeah. I was in New Orleans <laughs> one time, and I was standing on the street waiting for a taxi cab or something, and this couple... Um, like aggressively came up and and they were like, you're her, you're her, you're her. And I was like, what? And they were like, do something mean, say something mean. And I was like, leave me alone. <laughs> Perfect. And they loved it and were laughing and I was like, no, leave me alone. This is like we heard that story, uh, Groucho Marx, people would be like, please insult my wife. Yeah. So you're like Groucho Marx, basically, is what basically, we're saying. With yeah, a, if you had much. a mustache, would you ever think about that? <laughs> this is all coming around. Yeah, yeah it could work out. Um, we do have two standard questions that we ask everyone on the show. The first one is, 
if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Like, what is the question you're kind of tired of being asked? I do feel yeah. like I get at well, not at dinner parties, but I do in interviews. I do feel like the number one question I get asked is, "How much are you like your characters?" And I feel like that's kind of like asking, like, "How good of an actress are you?" <laughs> and I want to say I don't know because a I don't know what I'm like. I mm. think I'm a crazy person, <laughs> and so I don't know. But um, what was the question? That's good enough. Oh. <laughs> You've embarrassed our yourself. Ne our, ne our next standard question is, tell us something we don't know, and this can be about you. or. Just okay. Well, one thing that no, well, not a lot of people know about me is that I know how to Irish dance. Nice. I took Irish dancing lessons as a child, and I because competed. Because you're Irish? Or? No, I'm uh, Puerto Rican. Yeah. So it makes um, sense. I'm half Puerto Rican and half Irish, but I grew up with my foster grandparents are very Irish and their kids all had to go to Irish dancing lessons. So I was kind of thrown in with that bunch and I was like the only dark haired, like spicy, <laughs> uh, like Irish dancer. Oh, also um, a thing that I learned recently about the world is that um, dolphins have penises that can grab you. <laughs> Aubrey. I swear to God. And you don't listen to public radio, do you? No. Actor and comedian Aubrey Plaza recorded live just a couple of weeks ago at KPCC-FM's Crawford Family Forum in Los Angeles. And uh, a bit more discussion about dolphins ensued. As, yeah. as Brendan indicated there, it wasn't really appropriate for radio. But we can say that we researched the topic a little afterwards, and it seems Aubrey may have overstated, shall we say, the nature of male <laughs> dolphin anatomy. Yeah, you can go ahead and investigate on your own if you want details. <laughs> it's a heck of a Google search. <laughs> and speaking of demure behavior, we concluded that live event with, of course, one of our signature etiquette lessons. That's right. Our audience submitted their questions about how to behave, and on hand to answer them was Aubrey and Mr. LeVar Burton. In the 70s, he starred in the miniseries Roots. In the 90s, Trekkies got to know him as Geordie LaForge on Star Trek The Next Generation. That was a blind character who wore eyewear called a visor so he could see. That's right. But LeVar is maybe most beloved as the host of the late PBS series Reading Rainbow, uh -huh. which for over 20 years got kids excited about reading, many of whom apparently grew up to be in our audience that night. LeVar Burton, everybody. <laughs> so... We're at a public radio station. This place must be like visiting an embassy for you, kind of, right? It's like, it's like this in libraries you can go into and everyone will give you refuge, but right? I feel most at home in libraries and, <laughs> and public radio yeah, stations. As well. Yeah. And, and, and Comic-Cons, I'm guessing, too. <laughs> Comic-Cons are a little awkward. People love you too much. Yeah. All right, so your latest project is a Reading Rainbow app. Yes. Did you yeah. love the app? I love that you love the app. But the question is, so why the app? Why not do a new TV show? I think everybody here would love to see the TV show continue. Rico, today's like kids, both. kids today, the television screen is just one screen that they use during the course of any given day. If you want to reach kids today, you need to be on a, a tablet computer. You need to be on a mobile device. That's scary. It can be, but look, I don't care if it's in a bound book or on a tablet. I simply want kids to read. All right. 
That's weird. I don't want kids to read, but I'm yeah. not going to get into it. I want to know who are the people that didn't applaud that line. Yeah. What's yeah. wrong with you guys? It only causes trouble. But um, All right, so we told folks coming tonight to submit their questions. About etiquette. Yeah, yeah. you ready to go? I am. I know nothing about etiquette now. So what? Okay. okay. Yeah. Good. Is, is Neil Spindler out there? So, all right, Neil. All Neil right. Spindler. So stay right there. We're going to ask your question, but we may need you to chime in. So <clears throat> Neil wrote, is it okay to dog ear a page in a library book if I don't have anything nearby to act as a bookmark. Destroying public property, <laughs> basically. I know, that's a no-brainer. I want to know where I left off. The good, the good thing is that I'm checking out library books, right? Neil? No. <laughs> it's not okay. You cannot dog-ear a library book, man. Really? No. That's crazy. I mean, I've never, I've never done it. I would never do that. LeVar. <laughs> I'm just saying. I cut you, man. <laughs> <laughs> but really, is it that gross misconduct? Come on. It's like public property. It'd be like ripping up a tree in a park or something. So you remember where you hiked to. It's It'd ridiculous. be like folding up a tree. It's outrageous. That'd be pretty awesome. It's true. I mean, are folds ruining the pages, or are they beautiful? Thank you. you but when know? you read a book, and when you know it's, it was special. It's called a bookmark, Neil. That's right. It's called a bookmark. <laughs> They're everywhere. If I'm in a, anything can be a bookmark. What if anything I'm like in a can park be a and I don't have some, I could use a leaf, I guess. A leaf, I'll use a leaf. I guess use a leaf, dude. Or LeVar will cut you. Neil? <laughs> I think we'll just let you sit down now, sir. Here's something from Joanne Lynn. I'm coming out there after the show, Oh, Neil. God. Joanne Lynn, are you there? Oh, right over there, okay. Uh, Joanne asks, as someone who has donned electrical eyewear for years on Star Trek, I think you would be uniquely equipped to weigh in on Google Glass. <laughs> when and where can you wear it? Is it appropriate at a dinner party? What would Jordy say? WWGS. I think Jordy would say, been there, done that, bought the soundtrack and the t-shirt. <laughs> what, what would LeVar say? What would LeVar say? I, you know, Google Glass, I, I recently met the guy at Google that I've been wanting to talk to since the Glass project was announced. and. We talked about the technology as it is evolving. My initial response when I saw someone with it on for the first time was, am I being recorded? Yeah. Right? I thought, like, are, can they see through my clothes? You didn't get that vibe? <laughs> that, that, that? That's the visor. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. oh okay. I'm sorry. Glass, glass isn't that sophisticated. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sorry. yeah. That's what you were doing the whole time on Next Gen? You were just, like, looking at I people naked? looking at naked people. <laughs> Jean-Luc Picard. I'm hmm? going to watch that show differently now. By the way, there's, there's something in that box, isn't there? I, 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 uh, I am asked all the time, could you see out of the visor? And so I, I brought the visor uh, to demonstrate just how difficult it was to see. This is the box, wow. by the way, that the visor was delivered to by the prop master, uh, Charlie Russo, every time. It's uh, a wooden box. It's got a little brass plate on it that says Geordie LaForge. You better hold on tight to that, by the way, after I the will cut you, Rico. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's not just going to be me, man. I think about half the audience is going to bum rush you for that. So uh, this is the visor, and it is uh, molded to my face. It's a piece of machined metal. Here's the thing. We screwed the visor into my head. For the, for the folks at home, I am, there are two cotter keys that... One goes clockwise, the other goes counterclockwise, and I'm literally screwing oh my God, man. that puppy down because 
Wow. Does that hurt at all? Or? Well, He's shaking his head hour. around and, and it's not falling. No. Yes. I'm just yeah, yeah. Thanks for the radio. Thank you for the, yeah, for the, the play-by-play, Aubrey, for the folks at home. Have you so ever g- worn that at a dinner party? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. Where's the weirdest place you've worn that? In bed with my wife. Yeah, there it is. There it is. That's what I wanted to hear. Right. Yeah. Warp speed, baby. Warp speed. Warp speed. Wait, does your wife want warp speed? <laughs> Maybe we should talk after. That's another etiquette question. You can submit it, and we'll get someone answered. Holy but, cow. Um, Everybody. Oh, Google Glass. Yeah, Google Glass. You know what? Google Glass. <laughs> no. It's a downgrade. It's a downgrade. You're saying no, no Google Glass? No, already? put your dumb glasses away. Yeah, they look weird. So let's skip ahead. Is Hannah, are you going to show your face? We're not going to give her last name by request, and you'll see why in a second. In my defense, I thought that the questions were anonymous. So, (laughs) You gave, come on now, you gave us permission to say your first name. I did. You asked us not to use your last name, but (laughs) she's right there. Um, (laughs) Hannah writes, I love my mother dearly, but she has bad breath. Often. Should I just grin and bear it, or should I say something to her? If so, how could I address it without hurting her feelings? Go ahead, Aubrey. Go ahead, jump in. No, I just had an idea for an app. (laughs) (laughs) I did. It's called the Bad Breath app, where you just, like, anonymously send a note to someone that has bad breath, and it comes from the app, but it, like, is really polite and gives you, like, links to how to fix it. Someone pay me a million dollars so that I can create that. And now everyone will steal it. Goodbye. <laughs> no, this could be bundled into the Reading Rainbow app because people read close to each other. There's breaths important. Mm-hmm. So, No, what, how do you do this? How do you sell Hannah, this with it, your mother? You're very close with your mother. Yes. Too close. <laughs> Occasionally. Yeah. Are you certain that it's, it's your mother? Yes. That has the bad breath. Yes. Then you should be able to have that conversation with her. The woman gave birth to you. What do you do? Do you give her mints? Like, what happens um, now? Occasionally, I've been like, oh, you know, here's a piece of gum. I'd invest in Altoids <laughs> yeah. if I were you. Send her a bushel. Okay. <laughs> Anonymously, of course. Okay. <laughs> Using the app, perhaps. Yes. I'll, uh, pay, for, I'll pay for that app. Okay. Good. <laughs> I really want to do it. You know, Hannah, if you give us your last name, I don't think your mom's breath will bother you anymore. Because <laughs> should be out of your life, yeah. Hannah. So we can permanently solve that right now. LeVar Burton and Aubrey Plaza at our first ever live show at KPCC in Los Angeles, dispensing advice and ideas for money-making computer software to boot. <laughs> And if that sounded like fun and you would like us to come through your town, tell us. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And send us a Learjet with two hammocks and a nice bottle of champagne. Please. Folks, that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. <laughs> Next week, Jeremy Renner, among the stars of the new film American Hustle, makes a confession. Sport of bowling put me in therapy. A more dangerous sport than we knew. Jackson Musker is the associate producer of the Dinner Party Download. Engineering assistance was provided this week by Charlton Thorpe and Stephen Cologne. Brittany Martin helps with web ninjury. Our interns are James Delahousie and Davey Kim. And special thanks this week to John Cohn, Bill Davis, and all the other folks at KPCC who helped coordinate our live event. Bon appetit. <laughs>